with all the Ghostbusters films, there was been a lot of like, you know, behind the scenes stories and rumor or conjecture about stuff. How serious were they about maybe getting Eddie Murphy in the first movie, you know? What were the different iterations of Ghostbusters 2? And it was kind of stuff like that that I really wanted to dig into and like kind of present all the evidence and let, you know, maybe the truth is somewhere in between. And I also felt it was important to kind of put this all in like a cultural context. A lot of those articles are like, well, Ghostbusters came out and was the biggest thing since sliced bread. Well, what did that mean? What was its lasting power? And where did it fall like in the evolution of Hollywood? And why was it so difficult to get a third movie made? Hello and welcome to Good Journeys with Second Mountain. This is the podcast that shines a spotlight on inspiring people and their inspired stories. Please do join in the conversation with us on social media using the hashtag GoodJourneysPod. And you can find each and every episode of our show over at our YouTube channel, via the Good Journeys pod hashtag. I'm your host, Ben Veal, founder of Second Mountain Comms, helping good people do good. And today's episode is a very special one for me, as we'll be turning our attention to a movie franchise that's inspired millions around the world for close to four decades now. My guest today is James Green Jr., author of A Convenient Parallel Dimension, How Ghostbusters Slimed Us Forever. James's book has been described by reviewers as the addictively written, utterly engrossing read that ghost heads have been waiting for since 1984. The new book charts the evolution and up and down story of the Ghostbusters franchise and the people involved in its success. A freelance writer based in Texas, James has previously authored The Complete Story of the Misfits and Brave Punk World and has written for a host of publications including Orlando Weekly. James, that was your big intro. Welcome to the show. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Thank you. Uh, yeah, I also, very good. I, I want to point out since uh, publishing uh, the, my first book, This Music Leaves Stains, the complete story of the Misfits, it's not complete anymore because they decided to reunite <laughs> with okay. their original singer. So I like to, add, I need to add in that caveat where it's like, it's not really complete anymore. But the, the incomplete story yeah, of the Misfits. It's pretty, Pretty close to complete. Uh, I think so. I think that's that's crying out for a revised edition, isn't it? Then, yeah, yeah. At some yeah. point, yeah. <laughs> uh, so. But uh, but thank you for having me on the podcast. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. Well, well, look. I mean, I absolutely. We we've talked lots of, offline, but you know, I absolutely loved this book. I thought it was tremendous. Um, well, thank you. Why did you choose to write a book all about Ghostbusters? What attracted you to this project? Well, I've always been a huge Ghostbusters fan, and um, I felt like there wasn't a book like this that really told the entire story, uh, you know, um, not just of how they made the movies, but how the talent came together and what, like, the cultural impact was and, uh, you know, just the the long uh wait we had for a third yeah. ghostbusters um you know it just felt like there was a, a huge tale to tell and there were you know um certainly a lot of uh really cool uh official books have been published but i, I felt like there was nothing that really kind of collected all the all the bits and pieces and all the you know all the stuff that was out of the official story you know um so i did it so you did it, and what a story you've done! I mean, you you've said in you said in the book that you became an instant fan when you watched, you know, the first Ghostbusters as a kid. Um, you know, I think that's a reaction that many of us had upon first view, and I always remember that first time just being blown away, and that feeling hasn't really ever stopped in almost forty years. You know, what is it to you, James, that makes that first movie such an instant classic? 
You know, that's something I thought about a lot over the course of my life, <laughs> and certainly when I'm working on this book. Um, and I think that there were two uh, there were two reviews of the film when the film was released. There were two uh, critical reviews that kind of capture what it is exactly. In uh, Roger Ebert's review, he talks about how it's not just funny; it mixes a lot of different kinds of comedy. It's not just like Saturday Night Live style comedy. It's like you know, there there's like sarcasm and there's like in jokes, and there are weird twists on uh, sort of like American idioms. Um, so it's kind of like a, a weird grab bag, like a potpourri of different kind of comedic styles. Sure. And then I think in New York Magazine, David Denby wrote like this movie is is like it has the same kind of thrills of like uh, like a dragnet style show, like those those like the blaring sirens of like the 1950s or 60s, like straight laced cop shows. But there's also that weird sci-fi element of like you know from the same era where people are like waving wands at plants and stuff yeah. um but it's also tapping into the like parody of like the exorcist and rosemary's baby uh, you know it's just a, it's again it's sort of like a layered mix of stuff um but uh, like just on the surface level and i think ivan reitman said this at one point it's like these people seem really fun to hang out with and they're doing something cool you know they're yeah. they, like, they're doing something the the iconography of ghostbusters is very appealing you know and that all just kind of comes together but i think ultimately it's like these are people and characters that like you feel like you want to hang out with and certainly when i was a kid i felt that way and it was like i recognized that a lot of it was sort of adult humor or maybe wasn't it wasn't kind of going, it was going over my head or I wasn't connecting with it, but it was still like, I recognize this as humorous and there's something appealing to me. About that's, one, that's one thing that amazes me because I would have been probably five when I watched it first. You know, I remember finding the whole thing hilarious and mm -hmm. I look at it now, I didn't have a clue what was going on. You know, it's, <laughs> the, the first Ghostbusters is a genuinely adult movie that most of the humor is focused at adults not kids mm -hmm. but it just manages to tap into you'd never see a film made like that now with those kind of jokes well you know obviously for political correctness but you wouldn't see the kind of humor and the sophistication that's in the first ghostbuster in a family I think film also, anymore i don't think also just like that kind of that style of humor um has kind of changed and evolved and uh you know to some degree evaporated where it's like you're just not going to get something like that like you know it, it's those like bill murray and harold ramis and dan Aykroyd had their own rhythm and style and you know it's 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 you know you, you won't find it anywhere else i think is um you know and that's something i loved about the book um for anyone listening that hasn't read it yet i love the fact that it's it's a very layered book so you spend a lot of time um before we even get to you know ghostbusters in 84 talking about the evolution of of you know the lead actors talking about Ivan Reitman's portfolio talking about the Saturday, Saturday Night Live explosion everything that came before so by the time we got to Ghostbusters you had this cast of characters that just knew one another's comedic timing so well mm -hmm. didn't you yeah yeah and that was something that uh, you know, Ernie Hudson said it's difficult when he was working on the movie it was like it was they talked to each other like a family you know where they could communicate in ways that were foreign to him alien to him which i guess kind of served his character but he felt it was also you know it was difficult you know mm. connecting with them you know uh and yeah i mean that's it's kind of easy to forget that just how long 
uh, they'd all been like, you know, working together or how long they'd been intertwined or in the same comedy scene. Who was, who was your Ghostbuster as a kid? Um, my favorite was, uh, Harold Ramis, definitely Egon. Um, yep. <clears throat> you know, uh, I felt like he was the coolest. Obviously he was the smartest. Yep. <laughs> so, and he didn't seem to really, he didn't like, uh, I guess none of them really cracked under pressure, but he definitely kind of seemed to hold it together a little bit more. Yeah, it kind of rises, kind of rises above it all, doesn't it? As we, as, as we'll kind of come on to when we talk about afterlife later, but kind of always, as you say, keeping a kind of cool, calm head in a storm. And um, yeah, I was always, I was always a Peter man. I think back in back in the early days. But interestingly, as years have progressed, it's moved on to Winston very much. So I just mm. think he, you know, he has to he has to fight and graft so much for his for his share of um, <laughs> everything yeah. really. The Ghostbusters Empire, you know, obviously there have been many many books and articles written about ghostbusters over the years obviously you've talked about kind of those various official ones and where you slot in what 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 do you think your book adds to what's already out there well i think there's a lot of uh you know in the official ghostbuster stuff it's always kind of like they hit these bullet points where it's like well ivan reitman had directed uh you know animal house and he'd done this and that it's like it always kind of starts at animal house and to me it's like well what you know, he had a whole, whole, uh, you know, segment of his life before that. How did he get to Animal House? You know, or how did Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd get to Saturday Night Live? Like, why didn't Harold Ramis go to Saturday Night Live? You know, why did he go to SCTV? You know, and all that stuff. And I think that there, like, I had no idea before I started working on this book that Ivan Reitman was one of the first filmmakers in Canada to be prosecuted for obscenity because mm. of the film he produced in college. So I, I think that... Yeah, away. that really, that colors, uh, you know, what happens to the rest of his career, I think, to a certain degree. <laughs> so, you know, and I think there's a lot of, uh, uh, with all the Ghostbusters films, there was been a lot of like, you know, behind the scenes stories and rumor or conjecture about stuff like, you know, like how serious were they about maybe getting Eddie Murphy in the first movie, you know, were they going to, you know, what was this, what were they, what were the different iterations of Ghostbusters 2, you know, and it was kind of stuff like that, that I really wanted to dig into and like kind of present, well, here's what, here's what all the evidence and like, you know, maybe the truth is somewhere in between. And I also felt it was important to kind of put this all in like a cultural context you know, because a lot of those articles are like, well, Ghostbusters came out and it was the biggest thing since sliced bread. Um, but I really wanted to in, like kind of chart, well, what did that mean? You know, what was its lasting power and how did it, where did it fall like in the evolution of Hollywood? Um, you know, and what was, why was it, so, <laughs> what was, why was it so difficult to get a third movie made? Uh, Absolutely. You know, but the kind of question that everyone's asked, and I think your book does such a great job of kind of pulling together that wider context of all the shifts that were happening in Hollywood, but also in society over over that period. And, you know, making it very clear that Ghostbusters 3, as hoped, was never going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think Ghostbusters Afterlife was the closest we would ever get to that idea. Um, but But what fascinates me, I mean, you know, we are talking about a franchise that's, kind of burst onto the mainstream in 1984, you know, almost 40 years later here, we are talking about Ghostbusters and its popularity 
shows absolutely no signs of slowing down and you know we've now got new generations coming into the fold as well you know what do you believe it is about ghostbusters that is why it's had such a enduring appeal worldwide well i think it's a pretty fertile concept i mean every you know like folklore about ghosts exists in every culture and uh you know the what it's sort of like the one i feel like like in other movies about ghosts, they kind of just make them go away for a little bit. And this is like, we're we're doing something concrete. We're trapping them in something and we're putting them in a larger box. And we're making and we're making money from it as well. Yeah. At yeah. The same time. yeah, yeah. And it's it's just a very it's not like um, you know, rooted in like uh religion or like a mysticism, like the exorcist, uh, or polarized or what have you. Like this is a concrete solution to a problem that everyone wonders about, you know, <clears throat> and it's it's imaginative and uh, you know, and the car is really cool. I mean, it never hurts to have a really cool looking car. <laughs> no, it really doesn't. And I, and I think you know what what I love about it as well is it's as you say it's they're not they're not busting ghosts for kind of altruistic reasons. They're doing it to make money to run a business or an empire and it really yeah. into that kind of love again for the american dream doesn't it as well yeah yeah and, and and the underdogs and those that are kind of shunned by slightly shunned by society that don't perhaps culturally quite fit in these these three misfit scientists who go on to for a period of time be beloved by all in new york city until suddenly they're not anymore which takes us on to ghostbusters 2 and um I thought the book did a it's, it's interesting reading the book and reading the critics and the summary you've pulled together of, of all of those that criticized Ghostbusters 2 of which there were many um you would come away from that chapter feeling in some ways like it is one of the worst films ever made <laughs> yeah I you know I I adore it it's probably because of the time it came in my childhood it is a very different beast um it is it is not the sophisticated romp that we saw in the first one um but I still think it holds up um what what say you on ghostbusters 2 you know it's interesting because i have always i kind of like fluctuate on i think there's a lot of really funny stuff in it i think there's a lot of kind of creative stuff in it um i and like look i think that this is something that um people kind of lose sight of when they complain about the uh like how realistic like you know the narrative of a movie is i feel like life is so unpredictable and you never know you know you're up or you're down you know, and so it's like sometimes i wonder like you never know when a when a when a 17th century painting is going to become possessed do you <laughs> well i mean like the fact that the ghostbusters 2 opens and like it seems the whole city has turned on them uh, that's like kind of like mm, i don't know but that is something about that is a little more satisfying and feels a little more new york than like if they were just you know what, that that takes me off an interesting sidebar because one of the things which which i loved in your book and which also really shocked me was how much uh resentment there was towards the first ghostbusters film during its production can you, can you oh, talk yeah. about can you talk about that a little bit more oh yeah sure sure I mean, and having um you know i grew up like an hour outside in new york and uh, i lived in the city for a little while when i was an adult and uh oh yeah like you know the slightest the slightest change in the plan just like ruins everyone's day like you know uh like commuting wise and um <clears throat> yeah like you know i think one of the stories that is often repeated about their 
production is when they were filming in Columbus Circle and how that caused such a traffic nightmare, you know, and um, New Yorkers are not going to put up with anything like that. And, uh, you know, they don't care who you are. Uh, so, but there was also a lot of, uh, like rigmarole about trying to get locations where it's like, you know, we don't, you know, the, uh, we don't want you filming here. We don't want you filming here, you know? And I remember like from when, you know, I lived in Brooklyn, like in God, like 2008 to 2013 or so. And it's like, yeah, I mean, you never get any warning that this stuff is happening. Like maybe a day before there'll be a sign that says, Hey, we're filming the Smurfs movie here. The street's going to be totally blocked off. You're not gonna be able to get anywhere, sure. you know, or like. I remember I couldn't get into my bank uh, quite often because Law and Order loved to film like right on that corner, okay. and I was like, "You can't go to the bank today, sorry." Uh, <clears throat> so yeah, and I mean, certainly, you know, it's also another thing that's kind of hard to fathom on, at this point in time is like a lot of people didn't think Bill Murray or Dan Aykroyd were all that funny or like even liked them that much, you know. <laughs> so when people are like, oh, Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd are filming it or filming a movie in the middle of like the most congested part of Manhattan, they're like, oh, wow, even more reason to dislike them. Yeah. <laughs> they're unfunny and they're causing me problems in my work life. So, <laughs> And yet little did they know that actually it's a, it's a film that I think for many would spawn a real love affair for New York City. And I think I think you touched on it, but five years later, the 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 backlash wasn't quite so when it came to Ghostbusters too. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that's right. They were they were more forgiving, um, you know. But uh, you know, I think the, at least uh, like into the nineties, Dan Aykroyd was still complaining about how much how much the city taxed them on the first Ghostbusters. He's like, I'm going to be paying those taxes the rest of my life. Uh, so. Yeah, but certainly they didn't have as many uh, production issues when they were filming the second one. Sure. Well, well, well. What, one thing I'd love to talk about is is the kind of approach you took to the journey of writing this book. So you've, you know, you've written a convenient parallel dimension. It's impeccably researched, and you know, as as you say, you kind of write in the intro of a book. It's a story that's about much more than just Ghostbusters. You spent three hundred odd pages here covering the evolution of Hollywood and kind of of American pop culture more widely, really. Um, as, a, as a writer, how did you approach such a wide remit in one book? I just, uh, I read as much as I possibly could uh, um, about Hollywood and that era. And, um, <clears throat> you know, it was, I, I approached it like I need to write much more than I plan to put in the book or try to. So I can just kind of like take stuff out. I'm not scrambling, looking for stuff. Um, and honestly, like uh, <clears throat> it was it was tough to be like, you know, because there were so many interesting facets and tributaries, you know, and already there are plenty of people who are like, you know, who have kind of lobbed criticism of the book and saying like, yeah, you're spending too much time talking about stuff that isn't Ghostbusters. But I feel like that's kind of important, you know, to give it the context that I, I was speaking of before, you know, and just to follow the story, the stories of these people's lives. You know, I just I spent a lot of time, uh, you know, at the library or communicating with the library or, you know, using the uh, online library tools uh, and, you know, collecting lots of old books were you writing it during the course of the pandemic? Yeah, it started. It actually started just before the pandemic. Like, um, well, I mean, I wanted to actually, I had the idea to do this um, after, right after the publication of my first book, but that didn't, that was in 2013 and that didn't 
didn't work out then. And uh, but it when they announced Afterlife, I went back to my publisher and I was like, can we maybe revisit this Ghostbusters book idea? They're like, yeah. So I got off the ground then, and yeah, I was working, you know, all through the, all through <laughs> this historical event. And 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 how was that kind of writing writing from home? Did that did that provide some kind of much needed escapism during that weird period? I mean, yeah, to some degree, like it was still work, um, but it was. I mean, it was kind of like a mixed blessing because uh, you know. My son is a special needs kid and he needs a lot of help. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't, I, before the pandemic, I did take, uh, like I, I went out to Los Angeles for a couple of days to do research and it was like, it was good. Like I accomplished stuff, but I was also like, I don't feel good. Like, you know, being away from like, yeah, I want to be here to help as much as I can, you know, but thankfully a lot of like institutions that had materials and information that, uh, was vital to working on this book we're like yeah you know we'll well like we can work out something here where we send you the materials or you know you can da, 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 do it online <clears throat> so because at first it was looking like i'm gonna have to go to los angeles and new york and back to los angeles and here there this that you know so do you think it, it in, a, in a way it made the process easier the fact that the world was kind of locked down to a degree and travel was so challenging yeah, I mean, I think that there should be, I think those, I think stuff like that, like online access to these databases should have always been that transparent, you know, just, you know, because there are people who can't, you know, who want to do this work who can't, like people like my son who can't, you know, easily get out somewhere. So, yeah, it, I mean, it did make it easier in that sense. Um, I, you know, the, the weight and the pressure of all, you know, it was still like, you know, it wasn't like a, it was totally sealed in the vacuum and it was like and all this stuff. And every time I would interview somebody or talk to somebody on the phone, like it would always be like, so what's, what's your situation? Like, what is, is co what's COVID like where you are? Like, how yeah. are, you, are you leaving the house? What's going on? You know, I spent as much time talking about that as I did Ghostbusters when I'd be like interviewing people. Yeah, sure. And I guess you also had the, this kind of ever shifting kind of date of when afterlife would see the light of day as well i think you've done a great job in the book of summarizing this little time capsule really that bit where you're talking about the the theaters closing and mm -hmm. the james bond release and the shift in and the, you know the black widow lawsuit and all all of that kind of fascinating little pocket of hollywood history um you know but of course uh, were you originally working to a deadline of of say towards the end of 2020 thinking that was when afterlife would come out yeah, I mean, the, I think the original plan, uh, and I would have to check the contracts. Uh, I think originally the plan was like, yeah, it'll come out, you know, uh, just a few months after Afterlife, <clears throat> you know, in 2020. Uh, and I was really, I, uh, the publisher was very kind to to stick with me when I was like, I can't, I need to include Afterlife. I need to see it and write about it. You know, that's going to be important. <clears throat> and you know, eventually they're like, well. Why not? Yeah, everything else is delayed. Why the hell not? Uh, you know, they were they were they were um, very accommodating in that sense. But it was obviously very frustrating because it's like I want to get this done. <laughs> you know, I want to. Yeah. I mean, at the but at the same time, and I've said this before, it's like with all my books, I feel like oh, I could easily spend another five years working on this and making it better. Yeah. Um, but there's, a, uh, there's yeah. a point where you have to draw the line, isn't there? And just say yeah, yeah. that's that's good enough. Yeah. Yeah. So um, yeah, that's pretty 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 crazy and it was sort of 
difficult to believe I was even seeing it as I was watching it. It was like, you know, it was kind of hard to be like, all right, I kind of need to focus, but this is also very strange that I'm actually finally seeing this. Yeah. Yeah, I remember so. I remember being in the in the theater watching Afterlife and having that moment just thinking, I can't believe, you know, not only that I'm in a cinema watching this after everything that's happened, but I just can't believe this is actually happening, <laughs> to be honest. Um, but we'll come to that. I'm gonna I'm not ju- gonna jump ahead just yet to there. Um I'm really curious to to kind of find out about maybe some of the learnings you took away from writing this book, because you know, you, you said at the start that you are you know, first and foremost, a fan of Ghostbusters, and that's what led you to write in this. But at the same time, you know, this is not a book that shies away from talking about some of the more negative aspects, um, you know, both in terms of the production and also the behaviour of, you know, some of its stars, um, whilst you're obviously countering that with the many positives. So I'm wondering, did, did authoring this book change your perspective on Ghostbusters in any way? Or, you know, have you come out of this being as much of a fan as you were when you went in? Um, yeah, I would say I'm as, as much as a, a fan as always. Um, I think, like, the stuff I learned wasn't, like, when, in terms of, like, individual behaviors and, and personalities and negative stuff like that, I wouldn't say anything really surprised me or changed my, it's like, yeah, everybody knows Bill Murray is a huge jerk. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> Everybody kind of, I mean, I guess I didn't really know too much about Ivan Reitman personally. You know, I heard, I heard good and bad things working on it. And it's like, you know, when I interviewed um, Peter Giuliano, who was the first AD on Ghostbusters 1 and 2, he's like, you know, the thing you got to remember is like, you know, different people see different sides of other people, you know, at different times, you know, some people have positive experiences, other people have negative experiences. So it's like you kind of have to keep that in mind where it's like, you know, some people yeah. would say like, oh, this person was great. This person. But even people, there are even people who were like, oh, Bill Murray was wonderful. I loved working with him. You know, he was and people like below the line people, you know, like the <clears throat> the technical people like, you know, he was great. He was great. Um, it's also funny how people's memories can change with time, isn't it? Like kind of maybe what happened at the time, you look back on it with 20 years later, 30 years later, and your perspective on that situation has shifted with age. There's probably an element to that going on as well. Yeah, yeah, certainly, certainly. And, I mean, they're the only people who have experienced anything like that. You know, they're the only people who were in Ghostbusters who who worked on Ghostbusters. So it's like, you know, you kind of have that. Okay, the, the biggest shock or the thing that – one element where my uh, expectations were totally flipped upside down was when I interviewed Yafet Koto because I had heard that he had been offered a role in Ghostbusters and he had been offered a role in one of the Conan the Barbarian movies at the same time. Okay. And I reached and he but he was doing a TV show here as well. And it was like uh, this, you know, and I reached out to him and I was like, oh, you know, I'd love to. I'm writing this book and I'd love to hear what you're maybe why you turned it down. You know, why you turned down Ghostbusters and, you know, what was happening, and, you know. And he wrote me back. He's like, all right, I'm ready to talk about why I turned down Ghostbusters. And I was like, OK. And the the tenor of it suggested like this might be a serious story like this might be uh like you know maybe he encountered some racism or prejudice or something like you know i went into it like okay let's listen to what the man has to say and then so let's you know try to you know it could be a heavy conversation um sure. but and then 
he's like, you know, immediately he's like, James, I turned down Ghostbusters because I didn't want aliens to visit me anymore because aliens have been visiting me all my life. And whenever I do a science fiction movie, the aliens come back and like, I don't want that in my life. And I was like, oh, okay. Uh, okay. All right. Well, let's talk about that. <laughs> um, so that was some very like, uh, you know, he's like, Ghostbusters is real. It's not phony. Like, it, you know, it, it's all real. That stuff is real. You know, and he's telling me about all these experiences, like, you know, utter conviction. I'm like, this is mind blowing. <laughs> so, wow. yeah, that was like one thing where it's like, I was not expecting that at all. No, no. So yeah, that's, a, that's a very different kind of conversation, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But yeah, everything else was like, there was nothing that was like, you know, I mean, there was there were elements of their story. Like I said, like, I didn't know about ivan reitman's you know legal troubles you know when with that film before everything or like stuff like that but that was in terms of like completely altering my perspective about anything that was like the big thing yeah i was really interested in um the kind of ghostbusters 2 script revisions and how you know initially dana sigourney weaver's character was not factored into that in any way um and it's really interesting to see the evolution of how that shifted. Um, mm. I, I always find it fascinating to to think about what a film could be that you that you've grown to love and has become such yeah. a big part of your life. Um, and and also, I mean, just fascinating to to kind of hear how some of the latter iterations for what was supposed to be Ghostbusters three bear such a close similarity to what we ultimately got with Afterlife. Um, there's there's a there's a lot of kind of tonal and narrative elements to that that you, you can really see. Mm-hmm. You know, we didn't get quite the film we expected, but we certainly got a very close um, version of it. I think based on the discussions that we had at, at points, it's also fascinating to read some of the completely bonkers ideas for <laughs> Ghostbusters Three from Dan Dan Aykroyd's Incredible Mind. Yeah. <clears throat> One of the top questions I get since the book was published was like, can you uh, send me all those Ghostbusters 3 scripts you read? Uh, and the answer is no, I can't. I won't. <laughs> but also, you don't want to read them. They're not good. They're like crazy. <laughs> so, like, uh, oh my God. Yeah, just really off the wall and not like funny. Okay. <laughs> like, no. That's that's the thing that from the from the summaries you put in the book, none of them sound particularly fun. They sound dark. Yeah, yeah. Well, what one film that wasn't dark but maybe received criticism for being too light was um Answer the Call. And you know, uh, I was really fascinated by the chapter on this. I I shared this one with with my wife, who also really enjoyed reading it. Who it, you know, who isn't massively a, a Ghostbusters fan, but has had to become one through fifteen years of marriage to me. Um, but but answer the call the the twenty sixteen female led Ghostbusters reboot. You know, it's fair to say it very much divided fans worldwide, even a long time before it was released. Um, and I think you've done a really great job here of giving very rounded context to that film, kind of its origins, the criticism that it received, but also how its release kind of fed into this widening kind of cultural divide that was happening in society at the time, kind of UK having Brexit, US on the cusp of Trump. Um, what Looking back now, especially with Afterlife being in the Ghostbusters canon, well, what are your feelings on Answer the Call? And I guess, what do you think its legacy will be? And do you think it's been treated disproportionately unfairly? I think that people certainly like 
people are really rough, like much rougher on it than they should be. I think, you know, um, yeah, I think like Ghostbusters too, there's a lot of elements in it that are funny. There's a lot of stuff that's interesting and fun. Um, you know, I don't, but I think I kind of mentioned this in the book. It's sort of like, they didn't really do too much different from like what had been established. And it's something I kind of have mixed feelings. About. I think it's, it's, you know, it's awesome that, uh, they did that. And it's awesome that, you know, it's, a, it's a, like a different, it's also like a different kind of humor, a different approach to the humor of the comedy. I don't, you know, I'm not like a lot of people seem to be at war with people who like it. You know, I'm really a big like punk rock fan. And I love like the idea of like, yeah, you know, no sacred cows, no heroes, tear everything down, you know, let's just do whatever, you know, who cares? And that's kind of my feeling about it. It's like, no, it's not like the funniest thing in the world. And it's like, it could have been a lot more creative, but it's still fun. And it's, you know, uh, and like, I but I also at the same time I kind of wonder like well what I kind of feel like Paul Feig had his Ghostbusters with bridesmaids and I don't to me it's like I don't it seems like they kind of like were like Sony was really pushing to get a ghost something Ghostbusters made and like they kept going back to him and he was it kind of feels like they pressured him into it to some degree. Um, that's it. That's interesting. But he, yeah, he had his he had his Ghostbusters moment with bridesmaids because I think that's for. That for me was the prevailing thought when I came out of watching Answer the Call. And, you know, I enjoyed it and I've enjoyed it much more on subsequent viewings, especially since Afterlife's been um, been out, because I think I can now view it in a different way. But for me, the humour in it just wasn't as sophisticated as it could have been, especially with the cast of characters and fantastic actors that were part of Answer the Call. Um, I think it just, it it it's off a beat and it's, you know, to compare it and Bridesmaids is I like chalk and cheese. They're they're so far removed, and it's interesting. Uh, that was the yeah, that was the impression I got from from reading your book too. That it was a bit like, okay, I'll make a I'll make a Ghostbusters film. Clearly, someone's going to, uh, as opposed to maybe that real labor of love. But I, I don't know if that's possible to achieve a labor of love in Hollywood anymore. Um, but you know, it's uh, with something of that big budget, with that many expectations on it. But I mean, I, I mean, I mean, I think it's been very unfairly cast aside um, by so many people. And I think, I, I think it's still there's a lot of merits to it. There are things wrong with it, but there's things wrong with every film. But I, I, I feel, I feel sad for the for the cast involved that it's almost a little bit like it's been written out of the Ghostbusters history book. And I thought that your book did a really good job of contextually putting its valid place in the, the Ghostbusters legacy. Oh, thanks. There's so many people who just like screaming, like they're so upset. Like they made this instead of Ghostbusters three. Okay. Well, 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 with that, what did you think of afterlife then? Afterlife was a lot better than I was expecting it to be. I was very uh, entertained um very like engaged with it i think that the kids in it were also good together and i think that that's that was all they were also great and their adventure together was so appealing and fun and uh dynamic in in certain ways they didn't need to bring the other ghost the original ghostbusters back like I kind of felt like we were getting to that part of the movie and I I knew they were going to be in it. And I was almost like, 
can we wait a little bit longer? Like, I'm, I think it's more fun just to have these kids, you know? I mean, I guess any version of Ghostbusters 3, like, the only, like, really fertile concept is like, oh, yeah, one of the Ghostbusters has to die and become a ghost. Unfortunately, Harold Ramis did pass. And uh, I don't know. I mean, I kind of had mixed feelings about um, what they did, you know, using him, so his image or his ghost so heavily uh, in it at times. But, you know, overall, I think it's like, you know, it was it was good. It's a good movie, you know. I think I think, again, it comes back to that kind of first viewing. I mean, obviously, we're we're watching Ghostbusters now through cynical adult eyes that are seen a lot. But you have to kind of put aside to how you would have felt if you were watching that as a child like we did um, all those years ago. I mean, I, I certainly came out of the cinema. Having managed to avoid a lot of spoilers intentionally for about two years and really trying to kind of keep away from as much about it as I could just to kind of preserve that moment. Yeah, I, I came out of it feeling that it was a very, very special film in many in many regards. I've, I, I've since kind of, you know, read up a lot more about it, a lot more about its production. And there was just such a meticulous level of detail to so many of those kind of little moments and 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 factors that make the film what it is i it's not perfect um and i know the ending has divided a lot of people there was something very very surreal about seeing the original ghostbusters back albeit in a way that we wouldn't have expected necessarily and it just it just kind of made me think just kind of had me come away thinking i wonder how much they lived with uh, some of those stars i'm talking about you know, Murray and Aykroyd and how much they wish they'd done it years before, just dusted off the proton packs and um, just made it happen or whether it, it wouldn't have happened without Harold's passing. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, who knows? Like, you know, they all kind of present their front about it, you know, like Bill Murray has avoided like the plague and, uh, you know, Dan Aykroyd has always made it sound like he's raring to go. Um, you know, I think... Who knows how they really feel? How they, you know, may, I'm sure that there was some element of like regret, maybe after Harold Ramis died. But um, I feel like Dan Aykroyd and Bill Murray probably have had very few days in their lives since 1984 where someone does not ask them about Ghostbusters. And I'm sure, mm-hmm. as proud of of it as they are, you know, they've done lots of other stuff, and they probably, you know, enjoy having a break from thinking about it. You know. So in your view, kind of ideal world, you know, we've got Firehouse announced for, I think, kind of December 2023 or thereabouts. Um, In an ideal world, you know, we've passed the torch now fully onto the next generation. Let's not look back at what's come before. Putting the Ghostbusters, putting Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd and Ernie Hudson in the new movies, it's a bit like... um... I don't know if they aired this in the UK, but there was a commercial here a few years ago where E.T. comes back to visit Elliot and his family. Okay. It was like an ad for it was like an ad for like a a cell phone or like a tablet or something, and it's like uh, E.T. is back to hang out with Elliot on Christmas morning. And it was so like, was it Elliot? Was it Elliot as a grown up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, it was like. I don't know, man. I don't, it's just something about it just kind of struck me so weird. And uh, it's a bit, yeah, it's a I, bit like I remember when they did a similar advert. I can't remember what it was for in the States, but it was for they got the band of National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation back together, Chevy Chase and Co. all back <laughs> together in a room. And yeah, you just kind of go, mm, kind of prefer to remember you. Yeah. I mean, in that, in that moment in time, really. 
Yeah. And when you have these, these kids who are so appealing on their own and I thought they made a lot of, uh, you know, smart, like not cliche choices, uh, with like how those kids stories and their journeys and everything. Um, when you have all that, it's like, you don't, you know, I don't know. And it, it felt in afterlife, like almost like they, like there was all that stuff at like in the after credit scenes where like Winston is like doing a monologue in, in the firehouse. And it kind of feels like they were did like, maybe they cut a bunch, maybe they cut all that out of the movie. And then people were like, no, put that back in. People want to see them. And yeah, like it just felt like there were editing issues in that regard. But yeah, I feel the, like the, the Bill Murray and Sigourney Weaver bit in the credits just is yeah, tonal, was, tonally has no link to any of the rest yeah, of the film. Yeah. It all kind of felt like, yeah, it all sort of felt like, what is the point of this um and even when they show up when there's no like suddenly they just materialize in their jumpsuits um so yeah i feel like you know just move forward i thought they did a good job of that like in the uh christopher nolan batman movies there was there were threads that they just dropped or they didn't you know all the batman movies in batman returns they don't explain they we don't see the joker's funeral like you no. know it's yeah like, I don't but know. it's but it feels like we're in this real era of nostalgia with with so many franchises it feels like there's just we've got to kind of squeeze a little bit more out of the franchise and certainly we're in an era where everyone wants an explanation for everything everybody mm. like don't leave it up to my, my imagination tell me what happens like where you know show me yeah i'll probably go to my grave saying i think the best ending of a series ever was the sopranos um you can probably tell which camp i fall onto <laughs> and when it comes to ambiguity and uh, one thing i loved with afterlife of you know many things i love but one thing i really loved was phoebe i mean i'm my, my my son's autistic and you know we've we've been through a journey over the last few years of kind of you know talking lots about autism with him learning about autism and his place in the world and whilst it's not really overtly labeled as such phoebe's character um you know i just thought it was really encouraging my wife and i kind of came out of that saying how encouraging it was to see such a a strong confident funny young female protagonist in that role um and and i think that's a really big step forward for not not just not just the, the ghostbusters franchise but hopefully for for family films in Hollywood generally, just a, 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 a little bit, you know, there's never the sense really that Phoebe's the the butt of the joke. Um, she's incredibly cool the entire film. Yeah. Um, and she's just got such a handle on it. But, you know, for her, the fact that I think you describe it in a book, the fact that, you know, she just picks up a proton pack and just gets on with it. There isn't the, the kind of scenes we saw in Answer the Call where they have to make a fool of themselves before they can use it. She just, she just, intuitively understands the technology and knows what she's doing and as yeah. such i think she's a really there's a there's a lot of power in her performance um and i'm really excited as a as a fan to see where that you know group of characters go next and where they take the films now um but talking of what's next um you obviously don't want to go via the way of bill murray and still being asked about your book <clears throat> in 40 years time what what comes after writing about ghostbusters have you got another project on the horizon james oh i do oh it isn't it's not just on the horizon it's it's lurking uh much closer i'm working on a book about the uh 15 years guns and roses spent making chinese democracy uh which may i don't know if people even remember chinese democracy it was the the guns and roses we were all waiting for 
you know, and it was kind of when Axl Rose is going through his Howard Hughes phase, and uh, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, I remember living through it and being like, yeah, like this, this is not going to get any more insane. Like each rumor, each story you heard about was crazier than the last, and I was like, someone's got to write a book about this. Uh, so um, I'm doing that, and uh, luckily uh, another branch of uh, the publisher is going to put it out in a couple of years. So, so sticking sticking with the music theme, do you think you've returned to doing another trip through a cinematic franchise at some point? I might. I mean, I've definitely thought about it. Um, I've had a, a few ideas of tackling other stuff like that. Um, <clears throat> but um, after I finished the first book I, uh, that I wrote, I feel like I needed a break from writing about music. But then, you, you, again, you never know how inspiration is going to hit you, you know? I had this idea for this Chinese democracy book a few years ago. In fact, I was working on the proposal for it and trying to shop the proposal around at different places um, when they announced Afterlife. And suddenly I was back on the Ghostbusters, and I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so so i don't know to answer your question maybe so where can um everyone listening today keep in touch with your latest news i know you've i know you've left twitter is that correct i i have well i guess the best place is um my blog which is uh uh jgtwo.com jg2.com where's where's the best place to buy the book online <laughs> i think i think in the uk it is i saw it was available in wh smith's in waterstones it's you know, and obviously Amazon. Even before the release date for the UK, the January first release date, all the copies had already been sold out or reserved. So there's already delays, like even like at places like Waterstones. Uh, um, so, and I want to apologize. To, I, I'm just as frustrated by that, as, but I'm also thrilled that everyone's so interested in it, and the publisher is sending more books ASAP. Well, here it is. I'm I'm obviously one of the lucky ones in the UK to have a copy um kept me very very entertained over the festive season i was li literally glued to it um oh, and, I, and i can't recommend it enough and i know that it's a book that i'm going to um return to time and again so thank you james for for kind of filling in so many of those gaps and answering so many of those questions that i've always wondered about over the years wow. any um any final any, any final words or thoughts before we wrap up uh, I'm glad that you enjoyed the book so much. I'm flattered. I'm flattered that anyone uh, enjoys it and likes it. And um, no, we'll check. We'll check back when um, when Firehouse is out. We need to know. Maybe there'll be maybe there'll be time for a, an additional part to the book. At that point, yeah, you know, it's in the it's in the contract that I signed to like do an an update at some point. But I don't know, like. That's all. I mean, the only experience I have that is with my first book, and uh, they're kind of like I think it's kind of dependent on sales. Uh, yeah. They're sort of like, well, you'd have to pitch us on doing the first book, updating the first book. Sure. Which sells. It sells okay. It sells pretty good. Um, yeah. But uh, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, we'll see. Whenever Firehouse is out. Yeah. Well, everyone listening to this, if you're a fan of Ghostbusters, if you've ever been intrigued by the story behind it, uh, James's book. A Convenient Parallel Dimension is the, I would say, the definitive guide to all things Ghostbusters. Um, so thanks to you, James, for joining me for today's conversation. For everyone listening, if you've liked the show today, then please share it with others um, who might benefit from the conversation too. Um, and don't forget to let us know what you think via the hashtag GoodJourneysPod. 
Um, all past episodes of the show are available now via our website, which is secondmountaincoms.co.uk forward slash podcast. And we're on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Amazon Music, pretty much any way you can think of to fill your head with podcast in wonderment. So that's it for today. Thank you for joining me and James. This has been the Good Journeys with Second Mountain podcast. So until next time, let's keep climbing together and we'll see you all again soon.